Hello and welcome to the recording of our event The Art and Science of Deterrence with Professors Marina Henke and Julian Wucherfennig from the Harty School in Berlin. My name is Katharina Emschemann and I'm the Deputy Director of the Center for International Security here at the Harty School. The event launched the second iteration of our speaker series Challenges in International Security hosted by our Center in Berlin. The launch event took place on October 4th, 2021. During the event, Marina Henke and Julian Wucherfennig explained the concept of deterrence, its application during the Cold War, and its relevance today. If you enjoy this recording, please let us know and subscribe to our newsletter. Hello and welcome everyone to the second iteration of our speaker series, Challenges in International Security at the Center for International Security here at the Hattie School. This year, our speaker series is going to be all about deterrence. Over the course of the academic year, we will look at deterrence from various angles. We will have renowned international security scholars that will discuss conventional, nuclear, legal, economic, and cyber deterrence. To kick us off, our very own professors Marina Henke and Julian Wucherfennig will give an introduction to the art and science of deterrence. But before they introduce the concept, let me introduce them. Marina Henke is Professor of International Relations here at the Hati School and Director of the Center for International Security. She's an expert on military interventions, nuclear security, as well as European security and defense policy. Before she joined Hurti, she's held positions at Northwestern University and Princeton University. She's also the author of the award-winning book, Constructing Allied Cooperation, Diplomacy, Payments and Power in Multilateral Military Coalition. Julian Wuchefennig is Professor of International Affairs and Security here at the Hati School. His research focuses on the strategic nature of political violence and conflict, especially ethnic civil war and terrorism. He's held positions at the University College London and the ETH Zurich. Watch out for his upcoming book, Sharing Power, Securing Peace, Ethnic Inclusion and Civil War. Tonight, Marina and Julian will answer questions like, how is deterrence supposed to work in theory? What difficulties are encountered in practice? And what's changed since the Cold War? And now, over to you, Julian. Thank you, Katarina, for this kind introduction and a warm welcome to everyone who took the time to attend our lecture this evening, which uh, the lecture Marina and I have called an introduction to the art and science of deterrence. And as Katarina already uh, alluded to, the background for this lecture is that we have decided for this year to streamline our lecture series, Challenges in International Security, under this heading of deterrence. And um, as you can imagine, this was a very deliberate decision and uh, for good reason. So for one, deterrence is a classic, if not foundational concept in international security. But as we hope to highlight in this series, it's also a concept that is applied across many different domains, ranging from nuclear security to more modern applications in the cyber realm or uh, for counterterrorism purposes. Um, and so we are going to have uh, a number of separate events, which will have renowned experts who will then zoom in on some of these domains, starting uh, in our next session uh, with an event on cyber deterrence given by John Lindsay. At the same time, um, we believe that deterrence is a concept that tends to, under, tends to be underestimated um, and perhaps even misunderstood, and that upon closer investigation actually turns out to be more complicated than many people initially appreciate. So in today's lecture, we intend to provide 
um, a general introduction and we want to give you an intuition about the general logic of deterrence through three overarching goals. The first is, uh, is to set the stage for the remainder of the event series by highlighting some of the basics or the fundamentals of deterrence, asking questions like how and under what conditions does it work? And in doing so, um, I'm going to highlight two particular paradoxes that underline some of these intricacies that, that I alluded to earlier and that underscore the title of today's lecture, namely that effective deterrence is both an art and a science. In the second part, then Marina will further develop this point by focusing on a particular case that also zooms in on, on this art aspect of deterrence, which we'll call the manipulation of risk. And finally, she will then conclude the talk by briefly relating some of the key points uh, to, current, to the current era, that is talk about deterrence today and highlighting some of these themes that uh, we covered, that will be covered in, in other events of the series before then giving you, the audience, a chance to ask questions. So let's jump right into it and uh, let's begin with a very simple observation about the nature of international politics, namely that international politics is inherently characterized by conflictual preferences or divergent interests between actors, something that we would commonly refer to as disputes. So for example, two states may both put forward claims over a particular piece of territory that both seek to control, for example, India and Pakistan, both claiming the Kashmir region. Now, in such a setting, it is often difficult or even impossible to cooperate in a way that makes at least one of them better off without actually making the other one worse off at the same time. Since any share of that territory that is held by one state, by definition, cannot be held by the other state as well. And so instead, these two actors must do what we call bargaining, that is determining who gets what at the expense of the other. So in other words, international politics is often a doggy dog world uh, in which actors focus on looking after themselves and trying to further their own interests at the expense of others. And they do so by engaging in what we call coercion, that is trying to get another actor to do something that it does not want by means of threats or impositions of costs. And so my point here is that what we call the target faces potential costs or pain uh, if the target does not do what the other side, typically uh, the defender, um, wants to do. And in view of these negative consequences, then considers doing something that it otherwise would not do. Now, there are many different means or tactics that can be used in order to make international coercion work, but some of the more important ones uh, include military force or economic sanctions. At the level of theory, coercion comes in two different flavors, compellence and deterrence. And the difference is that compellence is all about getting the other side to change the status quo and do something that they previously did not do. Whereas deterrence is always an effort to preserve the status quo um, by threatening unacceptable co consequences in case the target seeks to alter the current relationship. So in other words, deterrence is about preventing the target from taking actions that the defender does not want and does so by threatening or imposing negative consequences so that the target will be inclined to rethink 
what they are going to do. And uh, if the defender is successful, then the target will back down and the status quo will prevail. In principle, um, a target can be deterred in uh, two ways, essentially depending on the timing of the actions taking, taken by the defender. First, the defender can ex ante or beforehand take certain actions that signal to the target that there will be a lower chance of actually achieving the aims um, in the first place. And so this is what we would call deterrence by denial. And an example would be um, increased airport security that we've seen since 9-11, which would signal to would-be attackers that they are likely to get caught, that they're unlikely to succeed. And so this should then in turn deter them from attempting to hijack a plane in the first place. The other variant uh, is known as deterrence by punishment, which means that the defender will impose unacceptable costs on would-be attackers exposed after the fact if they decide to attack. And so, for example, the International Criminal Court in The Hague seeks to deter war crimes, atrocities, and so on by making it clear to would-be offenders that their planned actions may actually land them uh, in prison at some point, point further down, down the road. Now, what both modes of deterrence have in common is that they both seek to alter the calculus of the target so that the target refrains from altering the status quo. As it turns out, uh, in both theory and practice, uh, this can be difficult to achieve, even though oftentimes very important issues are at stake. And so a lot of very smart people have given deterrence a lot of thought with some uh, very intriguing insights. Now, unsurprisingly, much of the intellectual origins of deterrence theory or deterrence theories, because there are many, can be traced back to the Cold War when the two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, were facing each other in a bipolar world. And from the viewpoint of the United States, where much of this intellectual work was being developed, there were three motivating or three core questions. First, how would you prevent attacks on the United States, something that is commonly referred to as homeland deterrence? And second, given the security architecture at the time or since then, the United States has also been interested in deterring attacks against its allies, um, especially within NATO, of course. And as it turns out, this type of uh, deterrence, extended deterrence, is even more complicated because it raises the question, why would the United States choose to enter a potentially devastating war if core homeland security of the United States was not at stake? And so basically, why would you fight someone else's war if doing so is costly and risky? And third, the United States was interested in generally understanding how to wield threats to get the upper hand against the Soviet Union, although this in part takes us to the domain of compellence as well. Either way, the question is now, how do you make deterrence work, both at home and abroad? And as it turns out, successful deterrence has essentially three necessary requirements. The first is that actors and especially the target need to be minimally rational in the sense that uh, they must view backing down as less costly or painful than uh, the anticipated consequences of actually launching an attack. And so in other words, if uh, there is no desire to survive, then it's difficult to uh, deter an actor. The second 
key component is that the defender must have the means to actually be able uh, and carry out the threat or equivalently the target must perceive this to be the case meaning that the defender can also try to bluff about these means and so this goes hand in hand with uh, the defenders need to communicate properly and overtly to the target that the deterrent in phase exists and how and under what conditions it will be used if the target chooses to attack. In other words, if you keep it a secret that you intend to retaliate and punish an attack, then this obviously cannot deter such an attack at the outset. And finally, and this is perhaps the most intriguing criterion that is most often difficult to implement, is that it must be credible that the defender actually would enact the deterrent if push comes to shove, which is particularly pertinent for deterrence by punishment. And so, for example, a key problem undermining the credibility of uh, the threat of economic sanctions is that such measures tend to interrupt trade between two countries, which not only hurts the target country, but also the country that enacted these sanctions in the first place. And so what is clear is that it can be notoriously difficult to achieve all three criteria at the same time. And as I highlighted, this is especially the case for credibility, because simply put, enacting the punishment may actually hurt the defender as well, to the point that carrying out the deterrent threat is no longer in the interest of the defender. Um, and of course, the target understands that. And so this would render such a threat basically void. Now, to see these core points uh, in action, let's have a look at a fantastic scene from uh, the British satire sitcom Prime Minister here. Prime Minister, you do believe in the nuclear deterrent? Oh, yes. Why? A big one? Why? <laughs> because it deters. Whom? A big one? Whom? Whom does it deter? Well, the Russians from attacking us. Why? A big one? Why? <laughs> because they know that if they were to launch an attack, I'd press the button. You would? Well, wouldn't I? Well, would you? <laughs> Last resort, yes. I, yes, I certainly would. Well, I think I certainly would, yes. <laughs> and what is the last resort? If the Russians were to invade Western Europe. But you only have 12 hours to decide, so the last resort is also the first response. Is that what you are saying? Am I? <laughs> you don't need to worry. Why should the Russians annex the whole of Europe? <laughs> They can't even control Afghanistan. <laughs> now, if they try anything, it will be salami tactics. Salami tactics? Slice by slice. <laughs> One small piece at a time. So will you press the button if they invade West Berlin? It all depends. On what? Well, scenario one. Riots in West Berlin. Buildings in flames. East German Fire Brigade crosses the border to help. Would you press the button? The East German police come with them. The button. Then some troops, more troops, just for riot control, they say. And then the East German troops are replaced by Russian troops. Button. <laughs> then the Russian troops don't go. They are invited to stay to support civilian administration. The civilian administration closes roads and Tempelhof Airport. Now you press the button. I need time to think about this. You have 12 hours. Have I? <laughs> no, you're inventing this. You are prime minister today. The phone might ring now from NATO headquarters. 
<laughs> Hello, yes. NATO headquarters. <laughs> oh, can you address their annual conference in April? I thought I could, I'm not so sure now. Yes. <laughs> Scenario two. Russian army manoeuvres take them accidentally on purpose across the West German frontier. Is that the last resort? No. Right, scenario three. Suppose the Russians have invaded and occupied West Germany, Belgium, Holland, France. Suppose their tanks and troops have reached the English Channel. Suppose they are poised for an invasion. Is that the last resort? No. Why not? Well, we'd only fight a nuclear war to defend ourselves. How could we defend ourselves by committing suicide? So what is the last resort, Piccadilly? Botford <laughs> Gap Service Station? <laughs> the Reform Club? Okay, so what's going on here? Well, both sides, the British and the Soviets, are in possession of nuclear weapons, and not just one or two, but they have enough to basically completely eradicate each other, which is known as mutually assured destruction, or uh, in short, MAD. Now, counterintuitively, and this is what I have called here paradox one, MAD actually poses a core challenge to the logic of deterrence, um, precisely because in such a constellation, the threat of nuclear retaliation is akin to committing suicide. The British prime minister understands that by pushing the nuclear button, he will also trigger Russian nuclear retaliation, meaning that all get clobbered. Now, if the Soviets understand that the British want to avoid such a nuclear Armageddon, then they are not deterred from conventional attacks here in the form of salami tactics. So the bottom line here is that according to the scene, deterrence is not credible, or put otherwise, credibility would have to be restored for such a deterrent to work. Now, the question is how? How do you make your deterrent credible? To many scholars, this is the fundamental challenge uh, of deterrence, and the solution underscores that deterrence is as much an art as it is a science. In fact, the two principal solutions to this challenge are intellectually so ingenious that they bestowed Thomas Schelling with the Nobel Prize in economics in 2005 for largely this. Now, some of you may know that Schelling's ideas are superbly captured by Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece, the movie Dr. Strangelove, which defines the terms as, quote unquote, the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. So now, how do you generate this fear when retaliation may not be credible? The first solution is by making deterrence credible. Uh, the first solution to making deterrence credible is to actually generate an irrevocable commitment by maneuvering into a position where one clearly cannot yield, uh, where the threat becomes automatic uh, because there is no ability to back down. Now, what this looks in practice differs on the domain, but you may have heard of the notion of burning bridges, which captures this very idea that troops simply cannot retreat. Another variant would be to make retaliation automatic um, through a so-called doomsday machine that would remove any human element of decision-making and that would go off automatically without human aid and uh, despite human intervention. The second solution to making uh, deterrence credible is even more ingenious, and it's based on the idea that the defender may actually 
deliberately manipulate the risk by leaving something to chance. That is to introduce an element that is beyond their control. Now, if this is the case, if retaliation is even remotely possible due to chance, then <clears throat> even though this would be irrational, then this would also restore cre credibility and thereby also deter the target. In turn, this gives rise to what I have called here our second paradox for tonight, which is that for nuclear war actually to become less likely, according to this line of thought, it would actually have to be made more likely, if only minimally so. Now, how do these conjectures or dynamics play out in practice? Well, this is where I will hand over to Marina, who will go through a concrete example. Yeah, thank you. Um so much, uh, Julian, for this theoretical introduction. And I would like to take you back to Germany in the mid-1950s, because in the little clip um, that was focused on the UK, everything was, of course, hypothetical. But actually, this manipulation of risk and the idea of deterrence failure was extremely real in a scenario that is actually quite close to us and, you know, like, at least geographically. So most of you know, Germany was divided and Berlin was divided as a city. And as you can see here on this map, West Berlin was a tiny little island in an ocean of Soviet control. And by the mid fifties, the Soviet Union was very unhappy about the status quo. Why? Because there was a massive brain drain. So here you see that um, a lot of people um, tried to cross from East Germany into West Germany. Actually, from the late 1940s until 61, one fifth of the population fled to West Germany. So this is a huge percentage. And a lot of them were actually highly educated. So you had a lot of engineers, you had a lot of students, you had a lot of uh, doctors trying to leave East Germany. And the Soviet leadership at the time, and of course as well, the East German leadership said, we need to stop this. And the, the uh, big flashpoint was actually Berlin because a lot of the border crossing happened via Berlin. So um, in Berlin, it was a little bit easier than to cross the inner German border. So a lot of those folks actually went from East Berlin into West Berlin. So this was the first big thorn in the thigh of the Soviet Union. The second thorn was that starting in the mid 1950s, the United States had deployed nuclear weapons in West Germany and as, as well Western Europe. By the time the United States had a huge advantage um, in nuclear weapons. And so the Soviet Union felt really threatened by the pre-deployment or forward deployment of these nuclear weapons. And so in the, in by 58, when Khrushchev was the new premier of the Soviet Union, he decided that something had to change. And what he did was that he threatened all Western soldiers uh, had to leave West Berlin in six months, starting November, 1958. Uh, and um, after these six months, the East German government would take control over all of Berlin. And um, so basically, uh, here, the Soviet Union wanted to test the credibility of the US deterrence posture. As you might have heard, 
the US had a grand strategy of containment. And one of the basic principles of containment was that the border that was, was established at, at Potsdam in 1945 was not to be moved. Uh, so anything that happened on the Soviet side of the border, the Soviets could take control. And this is, for example, what they did in Hungary, what they did in Poland, what they did um, in Czechoslovakia, but they were not allowed to move that border. And under the containment posture, the United States had declared, and of course, this was as well of uh, the NATO mission, that the US would retaliate. But here, as you saw on the map before, defending Berlin was actually irrational. Why was it irrational? Because defending a tiny little island in this ocean of Soviet control is incredibly hard. And the big picture of things, West Berlin had no military value to NATO or the United States. So it was not that NATO or the United States needed West Berlin to actually maintain control over West Germany and then, you know, like the larger um, Western world. Basically, West Berlin had a purely symbolic character. And so, you know, for the United States to communicate to the Soviets that they would actually use nuclear weapons, and the only way, I must say as well, to defend West Berlin was with nuclear weapons, because as you saw conventionally, so without using nuclear weapons, it was basically impossible to keep West Berlin because it was embedded by all the massive conventional capabilities of the Soviet Union. So for the Soviet Union, it would have been way easier to capture West Berlin than actually defending West Berlin conventionally. So the only way that the United States could somehow credibly threaten that they would defend it was to say, we are willing to use nuclear weapons if you touch West Berlin, if you cross that border that you saw here, um, you know, in Checkpoint Charlie, and you know, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have walked down Friedrichstraße and have been exactly at that uh, border crossing. And actually, a lot of the activity happened um, at this particular moment. So basically, the United States had to appear irrational uh, to deter the Soviet Union. It had to illustrate that, you know, either emotionally uh, they were so attached to West Berlin, or to a certain degree they were crazy, if you want, because they were risking to be self a target of Soviet retaliation by nuclear weapons um, if they were threatening to actually protect uh, West Berlin. But guess what? Eisenhower and then Kennedy, they were able to demonstrate this irrationality uh, on various levels um, that this happened. So the first level was that they immediately, once um, Khrushchev made this announcement, started talking to um, their allies, in particular to the Brits and the French. And in these conversations, they took an extremely hawkish positions. They, took, they said exactly what I just um, told you. They were basically saying, we are willing to use nuclear weapons. And the Brits and the French were actually pushing back and saying, like, but you know, like this is this is ridiculous. I mean, you cannot risk this. Um, and of course, the Soviets, via spies and all sorts of other um, leaks, were able to know this um, information, get at this information. And so they knew that even among the Allies, the Americans were actually willing to take an extreme position and were openly talking about using nuclear weapons over West Berlin. The second step, this was then later when um, Kennedy got elected. Kennedy deployed 
an extra 150,000 troops to West Berlin to signal as well to Khrushchev, we are actually ready to go to war over this pretty um, tiny piece of land. What is so remarkable about this entire situation was that even actually Kennedy thought that West Berlin was useless. Um, as this um, quote here says, you know, God knows I'm an, um, not an isolationist, but it seems pretty stupid to risk killing a million Americans over an argument about access to an Audubon. But still, they were able to communicate externally that they were actually um, willing to engage in this gamble. Um, and so, de facto, the Soviet Union backed down. They were never entirely convinced that the United States would use nuclear weapons, but the probability of even 1% of 2% was too high to engage in this gamble, to push further. And so the solution that they found was basically the construction of the Berlin Wall. And uh, as you can see here, I'm sure you know, like you all have probably crossed through the uh, Brandenburg Gate. This is um, uh, during the days of the construction. And for Kennedy then, this was basically, you know, the end of the Berlin crisis. And the Americans interpreted this as that the um, Soviets uh, side panicked, right? And that they were willing to accept or, you know, that they had taken a gamble and they lost this gamble because the credibility of the United States was given. So this Berlin crisis then led to um, the theorization of the game of chicken in a deterrence scenario. And the game of chicken basically follows the following logic. Uh, you have a weaker or a dissatisfied actor that is no longer happy with the status quo and so makes the first move. So, you know, taking the picture that you just saw, it's the chicken on the bike and it starts pedaling. It starts widely pedaling toward the opponent. And the opponent in this particular moment cannot refuse to enter, if you want, into this bargain, enter into the negotiation. Here, the negotiation that Khrushchev put on the table was, well, I'm not happy with the status of Berlin. I'm not happy with what's happening in the East-West confrontation. And in this game of chicken, so Khrushchev, to a certain degree, he, you know, entered as well in a game of irrationality. Uh, he knew uh, that this could lead to a nuclear escalation, uh, but for him, it was actually worth it. And so in this game of irrationality, you see then states trying to appear uh, that they're actually, you know, um, being driven by emotions, that they're losing their senses. So, you know, like um, the equivalent of the game of chicken and, you know, like often this is played as well in uh, kind of like in car races is to feign drunkenness and to pretend, you know, like that you no longer have a steering wheel, even to throw out of the window the steering wheel and to kind of demonstrate and communicate to your um, opponent, um, I'm absolutely determined and I will not swerve. Uh, and you have to be the one that is swerving. So in the big picture of things, um, you can restore or um, communicate credibility by manipulating the risk. And then it doesn't um, become just the balance of power, meaning of 
capabilities that matters, but actually then it's a question of resolve. Who wants this more? And if you appear completely irrational, you can communicate to the others, well, I'm willing to give it my all. And then sometimes even the weaker actor can actually have a bargaining advantage. And this is again, you know, going back to what Julian said before, this is why deterrence is as much um, an art as it is an, a science. Because if you manipulate the risk, if you act as if you are crazy, if you act as if you're irrational, you know, like you, you walk a very fine line between what, you know, is fully controllable uh, and where you have data and where, you know, I would say I would call it um, science. And, you know, um, you are very quickly in the realm of psychology, of emotions, because what you need to do is in the end manipulate the mind of your opponent, the mind of your enemy. You need to understand how you can, in the mind of the other person, create this illusion, create this idea that you absolutely resolved, that you're absolutely determined to do this, to restore um, credibility. And this is in the end, this is, this is deterrence. So this is why as well, you know, like the famous um, Thomas Schelling uh, concluded uh, that, you know, there is no foreseeable route under which the United States and the Soviet Union could back in the day engage in a nuclear war, but it could happen um, entirely unforeseen from reactions that are not fully predictable, from decisions that are not wholly deliberate, from events that are not fully under control. Uh, and an argument can be made that because this risk in various occasions, one of them is as well the Cuban Missile Crisis, others are actually um, is the entire, uh, in 1983, um, with the, the Pershing deployment um, to uh, West Germany, that in various occasions, this manipulation of risk was actually done rather well, uh, and it contributed as well to the end of the Cold War. So why did we decide um, to focus on deterrence for this year's um, speaker series? Well, because actually deterrence is still with us and it's critical in some of the key security challenges that we are facing right now. So the first critical security challenge and that we have talked a lot at the center um, over the last academic year is of course, Russia. So, uh, you know, in 2014, Russia annexed Crimea. And ever since, there are some fears that this might happen again in some form or another. And so NATO has, since uh, 2016, deployed uh, military forces to the Baltic states because some of the scenarios that are being discussed where there might be some kind of Russian interference is in the Baltic states. And the Baltic states, actually somewhat similar to West Berlin, are extremely hard to defend. So again, they are basically surrounded by Russia or um, Belarus. Russia even has the little Kaliningrad um, um, enclave. And then there's the ocean. Uh, so for NATO countries, this is this very, very um, hard to um, protect or to defend. And the NATO um, member states, the Baltic states, they're very, very small. So what NATO decided to, to do was to deploy 5,000 troops there. And de facto, um, they work as a tripwire defense force. And this kind of resembles what Julian called burning bridges. As you can see here, all the major NATO member states, so they have the United States, you have Great Britain, you have Canada, you have Germany, um, the French um, are participating as well. They all deployed troops there 
And the idea is if something happens to these forces, so if one of their soldiers dies, this then can provoke a reaction in their states. And then, you know, it will basically help support public opinion, but as well the decision-making processes in those states that then, you know, like a much larger force can be assembled to defend um, the Baltic states. Um, and, you know, like the second deterrence uh, posture here is that this is deterrence by denial. So it makes it harder if you have those NATO forces to actually successfully invade the Baltic states. So here, you know, but uh, on every occasion, um, there is as well the notion of manipulating risks and how can you defend the Baltic states successfully. But there's not only a conventional component to defending the Baltic states, but there's also a nuclear component. And the nuclear component is still composed of the NATO nuclear sharing mechanism. So many of you know that the United States has pre-deployed nuclear weapons in various European states, and one of these states is Germany. So um, in uh, Büchel, which is an airbase here in Germany, there are about, you know, nobody knows for sure, but about 10 to 20 nuclear weapons. And, you know, now the new um, German government that is hopefully um, uh, being, uh, you know, put together very soon needs to decide as well on um, what ha will happen um, with these nuclear weapons, in particular with the process of, you know, um, the German components or the fighter jets, and they're supposed to transport those nuclear weapons. So a lot of folks, you know, and rightly ask, does it make sense uh, to have these tactical, so small nuclear weapons, and then they get mounted on German aircraft and then somehow, you know, get flown east toward uh, Russia in some kind of crisis scenario? Well, you know, like maybe now with this background of the manipulation of risk, you understand a little bit better um, that actually this has, you know, first and foremost, a signaling function. So in any kind of crisis, their escalation letters never goes from zero to a nuclear war, but it will be, you know, like you move troops here, you will have some kind of, you know, other signaling device there, you will have some kind of, you know, hybrid component in another realm and so forth. And here, for example, using these tactical nuclear weapons, one could imagine that again, in the process of manipulating risk, just readying these nuclear weapons or readying the airplanes, putting them on the runway, maybe, you know, like giving them a signal that they can take off, all adds to this idea, very similar to the Berlin crisis, to signal that, you know, like the determination of NATO is complete. And so it adds to the credibility of the deterrence posture in this kind of scenario. Uh, and this is why some, fo uh, some uh, analysts would say that, you know, despite the apparent old-fashioned concept of this nuclear sharing mechanism that dates from the 1950s, it still has value today. You know, in a very different geographical region, and I'm sure like you have um, heard this uh, over the weekend, um, there's a huge question that confronts the United States, but to a certain degree as well, us in Europe, because there is a de facto pledge that the United States will protect Taiwan from um, a uh, Chinese invasion. Um, and here as well, uh, you know, like the United States needs to strengthen and have a credibility in um, its deterrence posture. And as you can see here, China is testing this deterrence posture, um, you know, more and more. Uh, and of course, 
um, it's quite hard to uphold the credibility the United States is serious about protecting Taiwan because Taiwan is much closer to China. China considers Taiwan part of its territory. And so how can then the United States credibly signal to China, if you touch this island, we will actually go after you. Um, and again, it goes into similar logic um, as with West Berlin. Our first talk actually in this um, speaker series um, will be the turns of um, cyber attacks. This is um, a new domain. Uh, in June, you had uh, President Biden meet um, Putin and one of the topics on the agenda was exactly this. Uh, I'm sure you've heard as well that there were a lot of cyber attacks in the United States, but not just in the United States, as well in Europe, on hospital systems, on the oil pipeline, on you know, all sorts of um, government agencies. And Biden apparently told uh, Putin in the United States, the CIA, things that these criminal uh, gangs, they're based in Russia. So if this will happen again, we will retaliate. Uh, so if we find out that you have Russian criminal gangs attacking critical infrastructure in the United States, we will retaliate. Uh, and so this kind of touches upon this new dimension of how can you actually deter cyber attacks. And we will have one of the, the most renowned experts on this question, John Lindsay, talk about this in our um, very first session on cyber deterrence um, in a couple of weeks. Another talk in the series will talk about um, deterrence of terrorism. Um, here there are two different types of deterrence that have been used. There's the idea of deterrence by denial, so making it much harder for terrorists to succeed. This is, you know, all the uh, fortifications in front of buildings and airports and, you know, embassies and so forth, of course, like entire um, airport security, the National Security Agency in the United States collecting a lot of information. But then there's as well this a notion of deterrence by punishment, for example, the invasion of Afghanistan to punish the Taliban regime for hosting Al-Qaeda. And in this talk, we will discuss, of course, you know, which kind of deterrence mechanisms have been more successful in this war on terror that, of course, you know, um, has gripped the world since 9-11. And then finally, uh, there's a um, very different dimension of deterrence, um, and that is legal deterrence. Julian mentioned this as well. This is basically the International Criminal Court, and it tries to deter these war crimes or crimes against humanity. Prior to the existence of the International Criminal Court, a lot of warlords and as well um, state leaders who engaged in these kind of crimes um, could just walk away, nothing happened to them. Uh, and now there is this idea um, that if you engage in these crimes, there is an international criminal court that it will eventually get you. Uh, but, you know, like um, what we uh, know now, um, since this uh, uh, court is in existence for a couple of years, the, the dynamics are quite uh, complicated. And so we'll have as well a lecture in the um, next year in spring that will look at all the de deterrence dynamics that come out of a legal um, deterrence posture. So concluding thoughts, before we move on to the Q&A, um, this was an introduction uh, to uh, deterrence as a concept. And I hope you can see that deterrence is literally um, omnipresent. The fundamentals of deterrence that Julian uh, talked about, they're timeless, but very often they're misunderstood. And um, what is absolutely credible is credibility. And so to establish credibility is both an art and science. Three things need to be communicated. Will I intend to have my way on this issue? 
for example, communicate this to Russia, you cannot interfere in the, in the Baltics. Capability, I have the capability, I have the means to get my way. And then the third, which is often the hardest, I care so much. So, you know, from the German perspective, from the American perspective, I care so much about the Baltics. I care so much about West Berlin that I'm willing to actually pay the costs. Uh, and in this communication process, to communicate will, to communicate capability, but in particular to communicate resolve, acting irrational, so appearing emotional, sometimes even crazy, can actually be quite helpful. And it can be the, the tipping point. So, you know, that the, that makes a difference between a successful deterrence and not. And that's why I personally find, you know, deterrence as, as a concept and as a strategy in political science um, extremely interesting. And, you know, for you guys as well, I think it's extremely important um, to fully understand. All right. Now I want to say thank you. Thank you for the presentations. Thank you for joining us today for the launch of the event and the deterrence iteration of our speaker series. If you'd like to get updates on our events, publications, and podcasts, sign up for our newsletter. And of course, we would very much like to see you at our future events. But for now, have a good night. Bye.